In a March 2019 episode of On the Case, we looked at the Court of Appeal decision in the combined cases of Rossendale Borough Council v Hurstwood Properties A Limited and Wigan Council v Property Alliance Group Limited, together with Roger Cohen, Senior Counsel at Brian Cave Leighton Paisner. Now, a little over two years later, the Supreme Court has allowed an appeal in the matter, which calls for an all new episode of On the Case. This time, not only do we welcome back Roger onto the podcast, but he is joined by his good friend and business rate specialist, Blake Penfold. Great to speak to you both. Great to be here. Thanks, Jess. Good to be here. Now, Roger and I have covered this topic a few times before on podcasts, including cases other than Hurstwood. But um, just as a reminder for anyone who hasn't tuned into those or, or maybe hasn't listened in a while, how do empty property rates work and why are they such a big problem for property owners? Well, Jess, can I um, open on that one? Because uh, work is a word that I would put in quotes uh, (laughs) when you ask that question. So empty property rates work by charging a property tax on property that is not income producing. So we're not talking about property which is being redeveloped. That can get treated in a fair way through uh, other means. Um, But what we're talking about is charging full rates on property for which the owner has no use uh, and can't find a tenant. Now, there are some holidays and reliefs, but the general principle is that full rates, so that's roughly one half of a rental value, are payable on empty property. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, it's a tax on failure and something should be done. And I'm always disappointed when you don't say it, Roger. Blake, do you have a a similar similar pithy summation of your view on empty property rates? Slightly different, Jess, to to Roger's uh, uh, position. Um, I'm I'm not quite on my soapbox in the same way, but I I would just note that really a lot of the difficulties with empty rate arose after 2008 when uh, the uh, imposition of empty rate was doubled from 50% to 100% for all properties and some properties such as warehouse and industrial that had previously been exempt from empty rate were introduced into the empty rate regime. So I, I, I would say uh, there is a case for empty rate uh, in that um, some services provided by local authorities to vacant properties are relevant uh, fire and police and, and such like. So I would say there is a case for it, but not at 100%. Yeah, that uh, that seems quite reasonable. So a number of cases in recent years have highlighted different strategies for avoiding or mitigating the payment of empty property rates. So uh, one such strategy was at the centre of, of this case. So who were the property owners in Rossendale versus Hurstwood and Wigan versus Property Alliance? And how did they each approach that task? So uh, if I again open on that one, um, we're dealing with some property owners um, whose properties were empty and they were looking for ways to mitigate their uh, liability to uh, empty property rates. Um, What the owners did was to uh, work with a promoter uh, of a scheme. Uh, to um, seek to achieve that mitigation. And the way in which the scheme worked, there were were two varieties of the scheme, was that the property owners granted leases to special purpose vehicles or SPVs, um, which were set up to take on the 
uh, rates uh, liability. We're talking a moment about how that worked uh, yeah. from a legal point of view. Um, the SPVs became the tenants in one variety of the scheme, um, scheme option A, um, the SPV um, was dissolved. And um, in the other scheme, scheme B, the, um, the uh, company, the SPV was put into liquidation. Um, what both schemes were seeking to achieve was the transfer of the rating obligation to uh, a company which uh, would not have the means to pay it and which would um, in due course disappear from the scene, uh, either by being dissolved or being put into uh, liquidation. The SPVs had no assets. Um, uh, the, in, the intention was that the rating authorities would be left with claims against uh, companies which had no means of uh, meeting them. So that was the that was the broad strategy in general. Um, we can talk in a moment about the uh, the, the legislation and, and how that works. But um, Blake, um, would, would you like to add anything at this stage? I think that's a, a, a perfectly clear summary, Roger. Yeah, it's a strategy of uh, uh, that might be known as managed insolvency and mm -hmm. um, designed to take advantage of the exemption granted to insolvent companies from uh, empty rate. Okay. So, uh, nevertheless, the local authorities involved issued um, proceedings for payment of non-domestic rates and uh, the property owners sought to have those proceedings struck out. Um, the owners did enjoy uh, success at the Court of Appeal, uh, as, as Roger and I discussed a couple of years ago, but, but now the Supreme Court has sided with the local authorities. So, how did the Supreme Court analyse the case and what findings did they make? Okay. Can we start with um, a sort of menu of the issues which came up in the course of the litigation? Absolutely. So, um, so one was that these leases granted to companies which had no business and no assets were in fact sham leases. Well, by the time the case got to the um, Court of Appeal and certainly in the Supreme Court, uh, it was agreed that these leases were genuine leases they existed and they did grant legal rights and obligations. Um, the second um, broad argument was uh, what lawyers are fond of calling piercing the corporate veil, um, <laughs> which is a way of ignoring the separate legal identity of one company from another where there's a connection between them. Um, I'm not going to go into examples of that because, to cut to the chase, piercing the corporate veil was not the solution in this case. Um, what was the solution was a rigorous approach to the interpretation of the legislation and also uh, an equally rigorous analysis of what the facts were and what these leases to the SPVs um, actually achieved. So let's just um, reflect on what the legislation says. We're talking about the Local Government Finance Act of 1988, which says that the owner of property which is not occupied is liable for an empty property rate, and the owner is the person who is entitled to possession. And what this, be what this case became about, and the way the Supreme Court decided it, was by uh, an analysis of who the person was who was entitled to possession uh, on the um, true facts, on the true understanding of the law 
um, uh, as it applied uh, in this situation. And I think the, the, the interesting thing here for, for practitioners, Jess, is the this sort of purposive interpretation. Um, I'm sure that Roger, uh, you know, is much more used to this than than perhaps practicing rating surveyors um, to see things analysed not just in relation to uh, the wording of the statute, but the purpose behind the statute is, is something of a novelty, I think, still to practitioners. OK, well, let me, let me rise to that challenge, Blake. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, when, when, when you're faced with words on a page, um, there are different approaches that you can take. You can look at the strict wording or you can try and understand the purpose behind it. And um, for some long time now, the approach taken by uh, the courts, uh, uh, certainly in England, is that one looks to the purpose that Parliament had in mind when passing the legislation and seeking to interpret the legislation in a way that's consistent with that purpose. Um, and that's something that applies uh, across the board. Um, whether we're talking about tax um, or whether we're talking about um, matters of concerns, the Secretary of State for Health, uh, which was an example in one of the precedent cases that was discussed um, by the Supreme Court in the, uh, in the Hurstwood case. So you start by looking at what was the purpose of Parliament and trying to interpret the words in accordance with that purpose. If anything, tax was the outlier because there seemed to be a trend in tax to looking at a stricter uh, interpretation of the language um, so that there shouldn't be unfairness to taxpayers by um, being uh, made liable for charges to tax, um, which uh, it wasn't obvious from the legislation they should have to bear. But nevertheless, over a series of cases, I think roughly from the 1980s, including uh, one called Ramsey, um, it became settled that even in tax, one had to look at the uh, purpose of Parliament, not just the strict interpretation of the words on the page. And one of the things that that meant for tax purposes was that sometimes the right thing to do was not to look at the individual steps or elements in an overall transaction, but look at the commercial result of the transaction as a whole. Now, I'm not sure how far we're going to need to go into that for the purposes of um, presenting the conclusions on this particular occasion. But what the Supreme Court have said very clearly is that it's the purpose of Parliament that counts when you're interpreting legislation, including in this area. Blake, does that help? It does, Roger, uh, and and I think it explains a lot about how the Supreme Court arrived at, at the decision that it did, um, which, which might be helpful for, for you just to, to clarify the basis on which that that was uh, that was arrived at. Okay, thanks, thanks for that. So, moving on from there, the Supreme Court, looking at the history of empty property rates. Um, in perhaps a fairer way than I did in my opening remarks, <laughs> um, took up Blake's point that um, one justification for empty property rates is that the owners of empty property do enjoy the services of local government. 
Um, another reason for empty property rates is that when they were introduced, um, it was thought offensive that the owner of property in a time of scarcity should be reluctant to turn that property over to some profitable use. And therefore, if you kept your property empty, um, you should be rated on it. And the rate was not at 100%, but it was at 50%, which was overall um, yeah, much more tolerable. Um, so what the Supreme Court justices said was the policy, the purpose of Parliament is to encourage the use of property, to provide an incentive for um, property to be turned to some uh, beneficial uh, actual use um, rather than be left vacant. So when you ask yourself, who is the person who is entitled to possession and therefore the owner? The answer that you come up with should be consistent with that purpose. So if you look at the uh, what was rather grandly called the tenurial chain in this case, you had the owner who had granted the lease to the SPV. Well, it was the owner's property. Um, it was the owner who had the ability to deal with it. The SPV was just there to absorb the rates liability. So in the real world, the person who is entitled to possession, who could take the decision leading to the property being occupied and used in some useful way, that decision making, that ability rested with the owner, with Hurstwood um, uh, or with um, Property Alliance Group. Um, it didn't go down to the SPV, which had no assets, no staff, no business, no nothing except a number of companies registration office. So therefore, when you interpret the legislation and ask who is the person entitled to possession, you look for the the entity in the chain of leases, um, if there's more than one, uh, you look for the entity who's got the ability to um, go into possession or sanction possession uh, in the real world. Um, and the SPV is not that entity. So before we move on um, to the wider implications of this decision, this this isn't actually the end of the road for the for the parties in this, this particular case, is it? So, so what has to happen now? I'll take that one because it's procedurally a bit complicated. The, um, the starting point is that in their uh, statement of case, the local authority said, don't look at the SPV you know, because you have, to, um, you have to look at who is the true party entitled to possession. And um, that was the argument which the property owners tried to strike out on the basis that it had no reasonable prospect of success. So what the courts do when these applications are made is to assume that what's in the claimant statement of case is true. And they say on that assumption, uh, is it possible that the uh, defendants could be correct? Um, so all the facts were assumed. Now, the uh, judgment did um, make the point that the level of detail as to uh, how these SPV works uh, was uh, was somewhat meagre. Um, so there is a possibility 
that the uh, property owners, having lost in the Supreme Court, may say, ah, but the facts are not as they were assumed to be, and they are more favourable to us. When you read the judgments, you might also think that if a case ever came to trial, it is possible, and I'm not prejudging anything, but it's possible that the facts might be stronger in favour of the claimants. Now, we don't know what will happen. Um, We don't know whether the defendants will want to take it further or whether they'll accept that the facts on which the Supreme Court decided the case is a fair summary of the situation. So we just don't know. We'll have to see. And I think this makes quite a difficult position for those who are and have been operating these schemes because it, it introduces a degree of uncertainty that you wouldn't normally expect mm. after you've had a Supreme Court judgment. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting to try and look at look at the the wider implications and how much of an impact in the light of that uncertainty do you think this decision will have, and and how will it alter the advice being given to property owners? I think it's a very important um, decision. Um, because it does two things. Number one, it confirms what we had um, always understood to be the case, that motive, intention to avoid paying property rates, is not a reason for saying that a mitigation structure does not work. So it's okay to have the motive of seeking to avoid your tax. It's just a question of how you go about it. And um, the second implication then is that uh, one should expect a rigorous or robust investigation of the facts and the statutory provisions um, in the course of a decision being taken whether it's by a bidding authority or whether it's by a court, as to whether or not on the true meaning of the legislation and on the facts of the case, the objective of uh, mitigating business rates has been achieved. Um, so uh, that, that, that is, um, uh, I think, a very important development which uh, flows from this case. Uh, it was recognised in the Supreme Court that Um, not every case might be the same. So, for example, you could have a parent company granting a lease to a subsidiary company. Um, So that would, again, involve a different factual analysis. Um, It leads on to the question as to how far uh, you can apply the uh, Hurstwood decision to other mitigation strategies, Um, but we might get to that uh, in uh, a minute or two. Just from a practitioner's point of view, I think the decision leaves uh, advice to building owners to to avoid uh, this type of scheme of rates mitigation, at least for the time being, Mm -hmm. uh, until the final position is clarified. But there are, of course, other rates mitigation strategies, some of which are known to be uh, effective and which I think would be proof against um, even the the sort of arguments that were deployed uh, in the Hurstwood case. 
I mean, can, can I can I just say, Blake, that I I don't think uh, ratepayers should place too much reliance on the fact that this case might go further. Um, and I say that because a reader of the Supreme Court judgment will come away with the feeling that the judges really didn't like this scheme. Um, <laughs> one of the features, for example, was that the leases to the SPVs contained a break clause, which meant that the uh, the landlord, the property owning company, could bring the scheme to an end um, pretty quickly uh, if they wanted their property back. Um, there were there was also um, concern expressed as to you know, why it was that these schemes would work. And there's there's one moment early in the judgment where they say that this scheme uh, relied on administrative inertia. In other words, the fact that it would take the billing authority or the local authority some time to work out that there was a tenant that was in liquidation or that a lease had been granted to an SPV who uh, had uh, gone into dissolution. And dissolution also brings in its wake other difficulties for the promoters uh, of the scheme. Now, in fairness to the defendants, this decision was being uh, made on the basis of facts which were alleged by the councils and which were assumed to be correct and have not been proved. Um, but um, there is a message which comes through from the uh, Supreme Court justices, which, if the facts are as they are assumed to be, is um, a pretty hostile one for the uh, from the ratepayers' point of view. And I would absolutely agree with that. That for the moment, the advice must be uh, to avoid this this strategy. OK, so that, that seems uh, fairly clear. And whilst we're looking at the, the implications in, in the wider field and, uh, of empty rates, we should mention here the recent High Court judgment in, in our uh, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care on behalf of Public Health England versus Harlow District Council, uh, on which uh, you've just actually written for us, Blake, uh, in a, a feature that should be going online. Um, well, will be going online this week and is in print at the end of the week. Um, so what is the significance of that case? A very different uh, strategy, uh, Jess. Obviously, as you've indicated, a different a different court, the High Court, mm. uh, so not the Supreme Court. A very different strategy, one of intermittent occupation. That's to say, taking occupation of the of, of an otherwise empty building for a limited period, uh, with a view to renewing the rates-free uh, uh, exemption period uh, at the end of the occupation. Um, in this case, the property concerned was a former GlaxoSmithKline building in Harlow. Uh, Public Health England had acquired it as their new national headquarters, actually. Um, it was vacant pending the repurposing and redevelopment for that purpose. Uh, and they moved in, in a fairly minimal manner, a number of crates of materials and moved them out again after about six weeks so as to be entitled to a new three month rates free period. Uh, the High Court uh, found that this was an effective strategy uh, and produced uh, a judgment, which, as you say, the, the details will, will be um, online and in print very shortly. I think the important thing to note are 
The two annexes uh, produced as part of the judgment. Annex A covers propositions of law that the High Court considers are established regarding rateable occupation and thereby regarding the entitlement to a new rates free period, void period. And, and secondly, a protocol for dispute resolution uh, in respect of empty rates. Uh, dispute resolution for rate liabilities is a pretty unsatisfactory thing. Largely, it depends upon not paying the rates concerned uh, and then uh, the matter being referred to them back to the magistrate's court. So both of those annexes are important uh, to look at for uh, property owners who are liable to uh, empty rates and may want to mitigate that through a strategy of intermittent occupation and to billing authorities who may be involved in disputes regarding rates mitigation strategies. Can, can I just share a, 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 an observation on what we've seen coming through the recent case law? Um, we've got Hurstwood, our case for today, which was definitely a scheme and there was a promoter of the scheme and the court has said, on, on this strikeout application, it doesn't work. Um, we've got the Public Health England case, um, which, if I've understood it properly, is the um, the person entitled to occupy the property, moving their stuff in and then taking their stuff out again. But they're dealing with their own property. And then in the middle, um, we've got the case from about three years ago called uh, Principled Offsite Logistics and Trafford Council, where, again, there was a scheme, but that involved um, physical um, storage, physical presence. So it wasn't purely a theoretical um, dealing by single purpose or special purpose companies, as in the case of Hurstwood. Not as strong as Public Health England, but that Trafford scheme which involved storage um, also worked for the ratepayer. So one can see the hierarchy on the one hand, um, uh, what is definitely a scheme, and then on the other extreme, you've got uh, uh, an owner of property dealing with their own property in their own way. And I think it's fair to say that, th that these cases establish there, that there are effective strategies for empty rate mitigation. Um, they do need to be carefully managed um, and probably uh, as a result of the Supreme Court decision, the uh, managed insolvency may not be amongst those effective schemes. So what, what does it look like the, the most effective strategies are and the most reliable strategies are as things stand? Perhaps I'll, I'll start here and Roger can, can add his thoughts. Um, let me let me give you the most effective strategy that I've always advised to clients, which is demolish the building. <laughs> um, that usually works. Um, th th there are other strategies. I, I think intermittent occupation is now established as um, an effective strategy. Um, the stripping out of buildings sh going short of actual demolition. Again, uh, it, it can be an effective strategy. Um, we've seen cases recently uh, that have um, put, I would suggest, a, a fair deal of doubt into the ideas of charitable occupation 
um, or in, in some cases even conversion to residential occupation. Um, so those may be areas to be wary of just at the moment. But yes, stripping out an intermittent occupation uh, are perfectly effective strategies. And the other one that's that's definitely worth mentioning is the idea that uh, you, you, you don't have to accept that uh, your existing value, rateable value, is correct. Uh, that may be something to challenge uh, at the point where a property becomes vacant. Perhaps that property has reached the end of its economic life or it's the end of its physical life even. So there are effective strategies, Jess, and Roger may want to to add on one or two others that he's thought of recently. Not one or two others. I <laughs> pay tribute to Blake's masterful summary of uh, uh, that answer. Um, I think we live in slightly chilling times from, from ratepayers who want to uh, deploy a strategy. Uh, the, the choices are not as extensive as they might have been a few years ago. Um, but um, intermittent occupation uh, is the um, top of my list um, for a, an owner who um, doesn't want to go to the uh, expense of demolishing or major stripping out work. Um, but um, one does have to put in this caveat that the the, the, the devil really is in the detail and one must expect schemes to be gone over with a fine tooth comb. So store, storage, intermittent occupation in principle, but one really does need to look at the detail of any particular um, um, plan uh, for uh, turning that into rates mitigation success. And of course, I suppose, you know, demolition and intermittent occupation both come with different, to different extents, uh, inconvenience. Um, to the owners of these properties. So I imagine we'll, we'll continue to see uh, people try and, and avoid these rates understandably. Um, so taking a look at, at, at the overall field and, and the problems that we've we've highlighted and discussed, do you foresee any action being taken by the government to address some of these issues relating to empty property rates? I would certainly hope so, Jess. Um, as you know, and, 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 and I'm sure many of those listening to this will know, there is an outstanding fundamental review of business rates, uh, which is due to report in the autumn. And we have to hope that there will be um, a, a look uh, at some of the more fundamental issues, not, not just relating to empty rate, uh, but including those relating to empty rate. And the reforms that, that I would like to see is firstly is a substantial reduction in the level of uniform business rate. Uh, the very high level of business rate, 50% effectively, uh, gives every motive to people to mitigate rates liabilities, both occupied and unoccupied rates. Um, so that I think that's the first thing. The second would be more frequent revaluations to keep rateable values up to date. Rogers alluded to you know, some of the difficulties of some sectors where there is no longer any scarcity of property retail is an obvious one. Um, and, and these people are being taxed uh, on uh, values that are years out of date. And the third thing that I would suggest looking at is this 100% uh, empty property rate. I just don't see the justification to it. A return to 50% empty property rate would be quite sufficient uh, to uh, give 
um, effect to uh, the government's desire to see property returned to beneficial uses and would avoid giving an incentive really to uh, carry out rates mitigation strategies. So those would be my my options for reform. Um, I fear that the reform options actually probably will involve trying to close what are perceived loopholes rather than trying to return uh, business rates and particularly empty rates to being actually a good tax. And Roger, if, if you were put in charge of reforming a, a tax on failure, what would you do? If I was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, um, I would also be looking at the abolition of the transitional relief, which means that ratepayers whose rateable values should be going down don't go down as much as they should do because uh, they're in effect compensating ratepayers whose rateable value should be going up when a new list comes in and who are being protected um, from those increases. And this this transitional relief um, sort of made sense when it first came in, but it's doing terrible damage to uh, property costs at the moment. And in order to support um, the annual revaluation or certainly the more frequent valuation for rating of um, properties, which Blake referred to, um, there needs to be some user-friendly IT underpinning the um, operation of the valuation office agency and the interaction of ratepayers with it. Um, that that they the, the stakeholders need to be given those tools by government so that the job can be better done. Now, if all of that um, Blake's agenda and my agenda um, was was brought in, then uh, I guess that might do me out of a job. But uh, <laughs> the good news is it would certainly keep Blake in a job. So uh, well done on that. <laughs> Seems to achieve all the desired aims, Roger. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, fingers crossed the right people are listening uh, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, give some thought to your ideas. So um, thank you very much, both of you, for for discussing um, the Hurstwood case and um, your further analysis of this decision and, and the, uh, the issue of empty rates can also be found um, in print with us next week uh, and online next week. So... Uh, listeners can can look out for that if they want to consolidate their understanding right thanks very much for having us jess thanks jess you have been listening to on the case from eg